This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. James chapter 3, and it's all about the power of words. I guess if we ask people to come up the front this morning and uh, we were able to draw from you the most cutting, hateful, damaging thing that's been said to you, up from the depths would come of some of these terrible, terrible things that people have said. On the other hand, if we were to say, can you pass on and repeat something that's been said to you, which has been absolutely crucial and formative and magic and foundational and helped you to cope, we'd be able to perhaps latch onto something that's been said to us which has been just the perfect word. I want to make sure as we study this chapter together that we do get James chapter 3 as a totality. Um, This is a much bigger chapter than me preaching a little ethical sermon to you this morning called Say Nice Things. James is not like the mother washing up at the sink, hearing her children fighting outside, opening the windows and calling out, be nice to each other. James is much bigger than that in a way because James is a deeply changed man and he's writing to deeply changed people. So this is not just a little piece of morality. This is something very profound. And what we're going to see as we go through James quite quickly this morning is that he, as it were, exposes the heart and then he shows the remedy. Exposes the heart and he shows the remedy. Last week we saw the importance of works in the Christian life, chapter 2. Not because they produce salvation, they don't, but they do prove salvation. They may prove salvation. Now this week we're seeing the importance of words, works, words. Again, these words don't produce salvation. We can't save ourselves by nice speech, by pious speech, but we may prove that we're saved by the way we speak. And nothing really reveals the heart like works and words, what you do and what you say. I wonder whether you, like me, have been shocked on occasions when something has shot out of your mouth that is so defensive or aggressive or angry and you ask yourself the question, where did that come from? Up from the depths has come something so heated. And then, of course, the Christian is also given the great privilege by God of being an instrument to say something really helpful and I imagine every real believer here this morning has been God's instrument to say something to somebody in the past which has been just the right crucial message. I've told the story before of Larry Crabb who wrote a book on encouragement and he tells the story in the book of being a young man at his first prayer meeting and being asked to pray in public in front of everybody and so he prayed his prayer and in the course of his prayer he made almost every mistake that it's possible to make theologically. Every heresy that could be thought up he included in his first extempore prayer and when it was over he was absolutely mortified and thought how can I escape? 
he tried to slip out the door at the side and as he's walking toward the door to escape, one of the elders is coming towards him and he thinks, oh no, I'm going to get into big trouble here. And the elder comes up to him and says, Larry, wherever you go and whatever you do, I am behind you 100%. What a lovely, encouraging and helpful sentence to say. So we're going to just skim over this chapter this morning under four brief headings. The first is the significance of our words. The second is the power of our words. Then the inconsistency of our words. And finally, the salvation of our words. First of all, the significance, verses 1 and 2. He says, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Uh, We all stumble in many ways. If anyone's never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. Now, this is how James begins the chapter. He wants people to know that if you're a teacher of the word, and I guess that could mean a Sunday school teacher, a youth leader, a Bible study leader, maybe even a parent in a home, certainly a pastor in a church, you're handling the word of God, you get to know it perhaps a little better than other people, and therefore there is strong expectation that what you know you'll do. And it's a very sobering thing to realise that when you take on the responsibility of being a, a leader or a teacher, you'll be judged more strictly. But then, quite reassuringly, verse 2, we all stumble and fail. If we don't stumble, well, we'd be perfect. And you begin to think there may be some hope in this chapter for the person who fails. Now, why does James introduce the chapter with these two verses? I don't think that he's just chatting. I don't think that he's introducing the subject of a teacher randomly and then forgetting all about the subject. I suspect that he is explaining at the start of the chapter that words are not a game, they're not a hobby, they're not nothing. They actually influence people's direction, their future maybe even their destination. And when a teacher handles the word of God and mishandles the word of God, that person is capable of wrecking somebody's direction and destination. When somebody well handles the word of God, they're able to set a person on the path of life and affect their destination for good. This is an extremely important start to the chapter. One of the words that James keeps using, and I hardly ever do quote some Greek, but some of you will know this word, is the word teleos, from which we get our word telescope. It's the word that means the long view, the end. And James uses this word a number of times in the letter because he's talking about God's long-term plan, wanting people to be complete or mature or perfect The word often comes up in the letter with different meanings, but it's this word teleos. God is interested in where a person gets to, where they finish. And as you and I speak to one another, it isn't sometimes just filling in time. Sometimes we're actually helping a person to take the path of discipleship more seriously. Sometimes we're given the privilege, as we were hearing earlier, of helping somebody to know the path of salvation. That's why James begins this chapter. He's not moralizing us. He's not saying to us, I want you to say nice things. 
but he's beginning with the principle that words affect people's destinations. They certainly affect their direction. And there's no better way to illustrate this than with the teacher. Now, I was reading recently a death notice in the Illawarra Mercury that had been written by a man who knew that he was going to die. And this is what he wanted put in the paper. And this is what he wrote. I am dead. I'm not asleep. I'm not departed. I'm not at rest. I'm dead. Relatives and friends are invited to attend my funeral, but I want no flowers and I want no prayers. If you feel that a gesture is needed, smile at a dog. Dogs smile all the time. Goodbye to those who mattered. It's very striking, isn't it? It's arresting. It's a clever use of words. And the journalist who quoted it said, well said. Actually, they are very tragic words, aren't they? They're very dark. They're very hopeless. They're completely contradictory to Christ. The long view of that person is fatally sad. I mean, contrast with the words of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I was dead. I am alive forever. And I hold the keys of death and of hell. Words are incredibly significant. That's how James begins the chapter. They affect somebody's direction and their destination. That's the first. Second, verses three to six, the power of our words. And this is where James uses three famous illustrations to show that the tongue may be small, but it's powerful. Uh, The bit in the mouth of a horse is powerful. The man who sits on the horse is much weaker than the horse, but that little bit enables him to control the horse. The rudder on an ocean liner is tiny in comparison with the ship, and yet it enables the captain to control the ship. The tongue, as compared with the rest of the human body, is very little, virtually invisible, and yet it has huge impact on what we are like and what we do for other people. So small but powerful. And again, I want you to notice that this is not just a control issue because the rider, the captain, and the speaker can again fix somebody's direction or destination. Not just, this is not just controlling. This is where is the person going to go? That's why it says in verse four, the pilot can decide where the ship goes. And then James uses three illustrations to show the destructive power of words. One in verse five, the spark. Verse 6, evil, and verse 6, poison. And these are things that don't steer or carefully control or direct or govern or get somebody to a useful destination. These are things which spread randomly and dangerously. You think of the dropped cigarette or think of the way evil spreads or think of the way poison spreads through food or drink. So what James is simply saying is that the tongue is small and able to do very constructive things. It's also small and able to do very destructive things. And incredibly constructive things have been done with good words across history. And incredibly destructive things have been done 
across history with evil words. You think, for example, of some of the excellent things that have been done, the gospel that goes out and changes somebody's understanding. They discover that there's a God who loves them and sent his son to die for them, to give them eternal life and wants them to trust Jesus. What a change, what an eternal change comes through those words. Or the scripture, which is enlightening, comforting, clarifying, guiding, strengthening, supporting. It was a wonderful thing on Friday night to walk through the property and see all the young people of the youth group sitting on the lawn in their different little groups studying the Bible together and to think how that word will shape their mind and their heart. Wonderful. Think of powerful speeches that have been made by a Winston Churchill steadying the nation, maybe steadying the commonwealth. Or think of godly conversations which have taken place, which have prevented a person from doing something crazy or stirred a person to do something good. Or gracious correspondence, which is peaceable and helpful. I was reading that uh, Whitfield and Wesley, who disagreed on some theological issues, they were both great preachers in the 18th century, and uh, they disagreed on the sovereignty of God, and Whitfield decided to write Wesley a letter setting out his position. This is how he finished the letter. He said, nothing but a regard for the honour of Christ has forced this letter. And I love and honour you for his sake. And when I come to the judgment, I will thank God before all men for what you have done for my soul. What a lovely thing to say when you're writing a letter of correction. But then, of course, there are terrible ways that words can spread. Think of religious lies which plunge people into darkness. Those of you who've travelled have seen sometimes how the lies, religious lies, have tied people up in a terrible bondage, hopeless bondage. Or the attacks on Christianity. Somebody has said that the three famous speakers of the 19th century, Darwin, Marx and Freud affecting the 20th century and the 21st century. Uh, Darwin used by some people to say there's no creator. Marx used by many to say there's no saviour. And then Freud used by many to say there's no judge. And these three have received tremendous support from the world because they eliminate the need to face up to the God who is creator, saviour and judge. Or think of the speeches by a man like Hitler in World War II, or the books and the articles which encourage unbelief, or the slander which wrecks reputation so quickly and causes people to unnecessarily divide, or the destructive conversations and emails which fly around so quickly. Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress has a character called Mr. Talkative, and Mr. Talkative is described as a saint abroad, and a devil at home. So James's simple point is in chapter 3, verses 3 to 6, that words come from a very small tongue, but they can do immeasurable good and immeasurable harm. I still remember things that have been said to me. I still remember things that have been said to me about other people. They colour, they infect, sometimes they correct and bless. Now, the third thing this morning is the inconsistency, verses 7 to 12, the inconsistency of our words. Verse 7, we don't have the power to control our tongue. 
We can, as a human race, tame a lion or an eagle or a killer whale, but we cannot control the tongue, verse 7. One of my friends was preaching at a school assembly and he said to the boys and the girls at the assembly, sensing that the need for Christ was not very real, he said, I want to ask you to take the next week and say nothing unclean, nothing unkind, nothing untrue. Nothing unclean, nothing unkind, nothing untrue for a week. When you've done it, write to me, send me a postcard and I will write back an official permission for you to not have to take Jesus seriously. He got one card from one boy and it said, Dear Sir, I was not able. Yours sincerely. It's a good test. It's quite a risky test, but it's not really a risky test. And then in verses 9 to 12, James talks about this terrible inconsistency. Verse 9, we praise God, we curse people with the same tongue. We sing our hymns in the church building and then we say something vicious in the car on the way home. We're all capable of this. Let's be honest. God bless you, we say to somebody in public and then to somebody else we say, I can't stand them. And so verses 10 to 12 of James are very revealing, aren't they? Because he's kind of doing a scan. He's showing what we're like. He's saying, how is it possible that out of the same person you can get praise and cursing? You don't get this with a fountain. You can't get fresh and salt out of a fountain. You can't get a fig tree to produce two types of fruit. You can't get a vine to produce two different products. No, says James, something's wrong with us. And the point that he's making is that we are divided in heart. The rest of the New Testament tells us, doesn't it, that the believer, the Christian, yes, the forgiven, saved, secure, heaven-bound Christian has a battle going on inside, which is the battle of the flesh and the spirit. They are at war. And our sinful nature is very real and our new nature is very real. This is not the the non-Christian position. The non-Christian is asking, will I or won't I? But the Christian is asking, will I do what God wants or will I do not what God wants? So these verses 1 to 12 are designed to have a sort of a humbling and exposing, a realistic effect on us so that we ask the question at the end of verse 12, well, what's the solution? Therefore, if you are familiar with James chapter 3, and many of you are, and you know that this morning we were coming to the subject of the unruly tongue, and you were thinking to yourself, he's going to give us a little bit of a beat up on say nice things, I want to say to you this morning, friends, that would be a big mistake. If you think that James is only raising the topic in chapter 3 to say to us, do get a grip on yourself. When he's already told us in verse 8, you can't get a grip on yourself. We need the whole of James chapter 3. If we stopped at verse 12, I could say to you this morning, so here's my little tip. Here's my little practical tip for you. Just before you open your mouth, ask yourself three questions. Is this true? Is this necessary? 
is this kind? That'd be very practical. You'd shake my hand and you'd say, that was pretty practical. One hour later, it's gone. Just we're back to normal. Waiting another five years for James chapter three to come around in St. Thomas's. So we hope James is more of a realist, and he is. Verses 13 to 18. This is the salvation of our words. He tells us four times in these verses that there are two different types of wisdom. Wisdom, as you know, is not just information because you can be a very clever person but a very foolish person. Wisdom is a lifestyle. And James tells us there are two types of lifestyle. Look at verse 15. There is wisdom, there is lifestyle that comes from below. He describes it as earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. We might say the world, the flesh, and the devil are involved in this wisdom. It can be very powerful. It can be very influential. Worldly wisdom can get huge results. But if you look at verse 16, you'll see that the roots are basically selfish and evil, and the fruits are disorderly, divisive, and again, evil. A man or a woman under the influence of themselves, their pride or evil, can be very, very powerful. But it could well be the devil's work that's being advanced. The other kind of wisdom is in verse 17, and it's described as wisdom from above, what we might call heavenly wisdom. This has come from God. It's not come from us. It's not come from the world. It's come from God. It's pure. It's not evil. It's peace-loving. It's not disorderly. It's not possible for us to produce this ourselves. It's no good beating ourselves up and saying we must produce this. We can't. It comes from God. And if you turn back a couple of pages to 1, 17 and 18, you'll remember that James says in the face of temptation and the evil inside us, verse 16, don't be deceived, Every good, perfect gift is from above, same phrase, coming down from the Father who does not change. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. And once again, James is talking about the work of God to change us, to give us rebirth through the gospel and to put within us his spirit who exercises new control, new enabling, new power for us to be able to speak profitably. And if you're a man or a woman and you're under the influence of God's spirit and you submit to his word and you submit to his spirit and you submit to his will, who can say how influential? Look at verse 18 of chapter 3. Isn't that a lovely verse? It may well be that God will use you to sow for a harvest of righteousness. Now, this is where the chapter of James 3 doesn't just tell us the problem, it also tells us our hope. James is not out to mock us. He's not going to say, say nice things. Some of you who don't understand Christianity, but you come here week by week, you may think that the preacher gets up to say, be good. Be good because it's good to be good. Be good because then God will love you. That's the opposite of Christianity. 
The message of Christianity is that we are not good. We are a polluted person. And therefore, we desperately need salvation. We need God's Son to save us, and we need God's Spirit to change us. Otherwise, we're hopeless and helpless. And therefore, this salvation for our words comes by the mercy of Jesus. Do you know that if you travelled with Jesus for three years and you were one of his friends, you never heard him, you never heard him say something inappropriate. He never said something unkind. He never said something untrue. He never said something unnecessary. And do you know if you're one of Jesus' enemies and you followed after him with the aim of incriminating him, you never heard one single word. And Jesus took his perfect, pure, spotless life and paid for all the thousands and millions of words that I have said that are inappropriate and all the words that you have said that are inappropriate and offers to us forgiveness for the past, the present and the future and gives to us his spirit so that we might have a new wisdom at work from above strengthening us, helping us, not just to say things that are true and kind and necessary, but things that might last for eternity. And I hope as you leave this morning, and I'm going to seek to do this as well, you won't say to yourself, gee, we had a little beating up this morning on good speech. I hope you'll say to yourself as you leave this morning, we were reminded in James that our words are very, very influential. They can do great good, they can do great harm. And in the end, it's beyond us to control what we always say. We're so weak and we're so sinful and we're so selfish. But God has given us a great saviour, someone who's paid the price of all those ungodly words. And God has given us his spirit to enable us to have a new life and a new strength at work. And we might then find ourselves saying in that famous prayer of the Old Testament, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Well, let's pray. Let's bow our heads. Our Father, we come to you this morning uh, wanting to acknowledge uh, completely before you that you've given us a very great gift of speech, able to exercise huge influence. We're conscious that our words are capable of great good and great damage, and we are humble before you as we remember so many things that have been said to us and through us which are false and wrong. And we thank you to our Father that even though this speech is beyond our control, that you have given us your Son, our Saviour, and you've given us your Holy Spirit to grant to us a new wisdom from above. 
And we pray that you would day by day increase our appreciation for the Saviour and that you would also increase the influence of your Holy Spirit in our heart so that we might speak words that come from you, words that honour you and are a blessing to other people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.